You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning, we're looking together at chapter 26 and verses 1 through 18. You'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 935. This is going to be Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 18. And it's going to be on page 935. Hear the word of God. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived like a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, 
Well, as you have surmised already, the Apostle Paul was standing before King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. The audience hall was filled with important Roman dignitaries. And after Agrippa had paraded in and took his seat, Paul was invited to speak. He would now have the opportunity of preaching to an assembled nobility. And what follows is his account of the background and conversion and commission that he found as an apostle. He said the real reason that he was on trial was his devotion to the risen Christ. It was the doctrine of the resurrection for which he was imprisoned. Having been reared as a Pharisee, he had lived a strict Pharisaical life. With zeal and devotion, he had embraced Judaism and opposed Christianity. And so intense had been his commitment that he even tracked down Christians in foreign cities and imprisoned them. But then something happened to him that changed his life forever after. The risen Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And in his own words, he says, At midday, O king, as you heard, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, which is the usual response to the glory of Christ, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you? Lord. And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And of course, this was the watershed event in his life. It's the event that the Lord used to call and commission the Apostle Paul. And the terms of his commission were both clear and straightforward. He was being sent by God as an ambassador to the Gentiles. And the Lord Jesus went on to explain the nature of his gospel ministry. You're going to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And what a commission this was. Nothing short of being a spiritual midwife. Paul would be instrumental in the new birth of Gentile believers. From the perspective of eternity, as you probably guessed, this would be the most important work of all, spiritual midwifery. The Spirit would work through Paul to bring immortal souls into the kingdom and to the far reaches of eternity, and I can't even begin to comprehend what that phrase means to the far reaches of eternity, the fruit of his labors would be on display. Many would be delivered from the pains of hell and will forever give thanks for his ministry. And I think Paul's commission has striking similarities with those of the Old Testament prophets. There's this common thread running through all of the commissions, prophets, apostles, Jeremiah 1, listen to this. The Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, 
For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Did you hear the language of sent, being sent? In Ezekiel, it says, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. And here again, we find the emphasis on being sent by the Lord God. I think even more striking are the similarities between Paul's commission and that of John the Baptist. This is what John's father said in prophesying of his son. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. I think the point is, Paul's commission was like those of the Old Testament prophets. The apostle, in other words, is being sent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim truth to sinners. But all the prophetic commissions are mere echoes of the greatest commission of all time. Do you know what that is? Isaiah 42 lays it out. I am the Lord... I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Can't you not see? Paul's ministry is merely an extension of the ministry of Jesus. So as a witness to the gospel, Paul was to carry out the work of Jesus Christ, as Luke implied at the beginning of the book of Acts. This is a record of what Jesus is simply continuing to do, what we're doing this morning. Witness-bearing would be the Apostle Paul's primary responsibility, witness-bearing. And in so doing, we learn that he would be opening the blind eyes of sinners, Like all other witnesses, he was being sent to a world that is blinded by sin. He would minister among a Gentile people engulfed in deep darkness. Paul would go and open their eyes. He would expose their sin. He would bring to light their misery. And he would reveal to them their desperate need of the only Savior of mankind, And that was his call. So the goal of his ministry at the outset would be to turn them from darkness to light. His witness bearing, we're told, would be used to deliver them from the power of Satan to the blessing of God. And sinners would be converted. They'd be rescued and freed and redeemed by faith in Christ. And Paul himself would be an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. There's a book by that name. It's a great book. Instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. And of course, he'd be only an instrument, nothing more, nothing less. As he tells the Corinthians, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. But what an instrument. He would be involved in saving Immortal souls. 
immortal souls. Enabling sinners like you and me to receive forgiveness of sins and to enjoy nothing less than eternal life. He would proclaim the truth, and as he did so, the Spirit would exercise this sovereign, gracious power. And God would be pleased to use that witness to carry out his purpose. Isn't that incredible? And we know the work itself is the Lord's. We know that. Only by the Spirit are the eyes of the heart opened. And it's only as we respond in faith that the message of salvation saves us. Blind eyes must be opened. Darkness has to be dispelled. The devil has to be overcome. And that's what Jesus does by his Spirit, working through the witness of saints. As we read this morning, or as Pastor Pilon read, by God's grace, sins are forgiven. The inheritance that's eternal is received by faith. The Holy Spirit exercises what we've often heard as the sovereign, gracious power to dispel darkness. But amazingly, stunningly, he uses human instruments like you and me and the Apostle Paul to accomplish that very thing. That staggers the imagination. He enlists us to communicate the truth of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, this treasure. It's the truth as revealed in Scripture and as experienced in our hearts. At least I hope it's experienced in your heart. We're not called to tickle man's ears or to simply soothe his fears like modern psychology. Nothing wrong with psychology in and of itself, but it's not based upon Scripture for the most part. We're not called to tickle man's ears or to simply soothe his fears. We're called to make known the truth, even though it irritates his ears and aggravates his fears. And this may happen as you and I relate to them the verity of final judgment. It's there. And you and I can talk to her blue in the face. The world's not going to believe it. So be it. Yes, we have to try to be winsome and faithful as witness bearers, but we must never compromise on the truth, any part of the truth. Paul didn't. Have you ever considered yourself as a living beacon of light in a dark world? A living, breathing beacon of light. Do you realize, do I realize, what a privilege this is in the grand scheme of redemption? You and I, like Paul, as instruments, are the means that God employs to save souls. He chooses to use sinful human agents in saving and sanctifying his people. You know, there's a saying. I think Elder Van Drunen has used this many times. God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. It's exactly what he does with you and me. We're crooked sticks. Straight lines. He takes pleasure in using earthen vessels to convey the treasure of treasures. 
And so the great question boils down to this. Are you and I willing to bear witness? God is willing to use us, but are we willing to be of service to him? Now, we're not in charge of the response of sinners. They can accept or reject. That's not your responsibility. Only the Spirit can do the inward work of implanting saving faith. But God commands us to be witnesses as he commanded Paul. Like signposts pointing the way. There he is. And people all around us are in darkness and they need the light. And we're saved and we're sent to shine. You are the light of the world, said the Lord Jesus. Let your light shine before others so that they may see, see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And Jesus could say that because he himself is the light. He is the true light which gives light to everyone according to John 1 verse 9. And like Paul, we are privileged to tell others about the person and work of Jesus Christ. You were a missionary and you know. God says that he'll bless our testimony so that blind sinners can see. <laughs> he'll work through our fallible, imperfect tainted witness-bearing to bring sinners out of darkness. The Bible uses light and darkness metaphorically in, as two different lifestyles, light and darkness, okay? Two radically different ways of living in this world. Darkness, living according to the world, under Satan, in sin, apart from God. That's darkness, it is the dark, unenlightened, self-centered lifestyle of the unbelieving fool. Light, living in Christ according to his will, empowered by his spirit. It's the bright, illuminated, holy, joyful lifestyle of the believing Christian. He or she lives not for himself, but for the glory of God and the good of others. That's the Christian and obviously, these are two radically different ways of belief and practice. They are antithetical. Both can be seen vividly in people around us. One of the most wonderful things about the assembly here is we can see the grace of God at work in one another. I see it as I see you being sanctified and hopefully as you see me being sanctified. But we're told in John 3 that this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So do you see what we're up against? Sinners love darkness. They're wedded to it. God sends the light into the world in order to save those who believe, but relatively few, relatively few will believe. A comparatively small number accept. The great prophet Isaiah, he says, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah's ministry, the great prophet Isaiah, was met in large part by a rejection on the part of the Jews. The truth of Jesus that we convey may be met with the same kind of rejection. 
I think our brothers and sisters on the front line in young life have experienced that on a daily basis, the rejection. But you don't give up. Compared to how many we might think should believe, only a few believe. And if a person will not come to the light, the fault is entirely his own. That's because he loves the darkness. That's because he rejects the light. He chooses death and he'll perish. And because he loves the darkness, the darkness will be his everlasting portion. Do you not see this in the reactions of Festus and Agrippa to Paul's testimony? It's right there in the text. They represent the typical Jewish and Gentile responses to the gospel. Festus, a Roman, this is folly. He cries out, Paul, you're out of your mind. Agrippa, versed in Judaism, finds it a stumbling block. He says to Paul, would you persuade me, a king? And the folly and the scandal of the cross is an obstacle too great for either one of them to overcome. So in the time that remains, and I know there's not a whole lot of it, but I'd like us to consider more carefully three implications of his ministry. We've already dealt with the first one, but let's look at it. The first implication of Paul's ministry, his commission, is that sinners are in darkness. By nature, every human being is spiritually blind, morally dark, and under the devil's power. In his letters to Timothy, Paul refers more than once to the snare of the devil. And from the womb, every human being lives in moral and spiritual darkness. This is true objectively, as many do not have the light of the written word. No gospel, no Bible. They have no access to the published message of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's darkness. But it's also true subjectively, as many have minds that have not been enlightened. That's darkness. Seeing, they don't see. Hearing, they don't hear. Their hearts are unrenewed. They have the Word of God everywhere. On your phone, on the TV, on the radio, wherever. But they can't see its truth, its beauty, or its goodness. They can't understand it. They will not accept the things of the Spirit. And in both cases, objectively and subjectively, people are living in darkness. They're encompassed by it. They're overcome by it. They're enslaved by it. And it's tragic. I remember the days of darkness in my own life before the age of 23. It's tragic. And sadly, they don't even realize the reality of their condition. They can be nice, cordial, civic-minded people and still be under satanic dominion. And this is part of the misery of sin. They're blind to the reality of their condition. You can try to tell them. And despite all their protests, Satan is their ruler. Paul refers to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience who are by nature children of wrath. Polite Johnny Smith, delicate Susie Jones, may be the devil's children. 
And if they have not embraced Christ by faith, that's exactly who they are. The devil motivates them. He commands them. He rules, possesses, and claims them. They're in the strong man's house, considered the strong man's goods. And unless Christ delivers them from the domain of darkness, they will perish. Unless he transfers them, which is an amazing thing, transfers them to the kingdom of light, they'll die in their sins. And that is the horrible reality of being an unregenerate child of Adam. And whether or not they're conscious of it, they'll live their lives under the curse of God. Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Paul goes on to say in that very passage, God abandons them and gives them over to their own sinful desires. And they wear the devil's badge and they do the devil's work and they follow the devil's orders and Satan's likeness, which is the image of darkness, is emblazoned upon their souls. That's why we confessed that question and answer this morning. The punishments of sin in this world. Did you see it? Blindness of mind. A reprobate sense. Strong delusions. Hardness of heart. Horror of conscience and vile affections. Men and women exchanging the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And through perversion, Paul says, they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. They may not know it, they will not admit it, but they're living in deep darkness. It's a life lived in godless, perverse, Christless, spiritless atmosphere. Tragic. And in the shadow of approaching wrath, can you imagine the fearful expectation of judgment that sometimes afflicts them? I remember it. I didn't know anything about the Bible, but I knew this. My conscience plagued me. The day of the Lord is coming, says Joel. It's near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And this is no way to live. How tragic to forfeit the light of life for the darkness of death. How dreadful to live under the law's curse and God's threats and the sentence of condemnation. And each day could be the one in which the revenging stroke of justice ruins them. You've heard of the Damocles sword. Hanging from a thread from the ceiling. And the servant wanted to be king, and so the king let him sit in that throne for one day with that sword hanging over his head. That's what it's like to be king. Every moment could be your last. That's what it's like to be a sinner. What a wretched existence that is. But you know something? That's nothing compared to eternity, which is far worse who can imagine? Friends, thick darkness is spreading across this country at an alarming rate. We have the gospel in abundance, literarily, digitally, audibly, countless other forms. We have the gospel. 
And yet the majority of Americans are willfully blind and enveloped in darkness. Do you remember the Da Vinci Code? I forget how long it was. The Da Vinci Code. It was a book made into a movie. It was 32 weeks on the New York Times best-selling list. It was it gained a number one ranking in Amazon sales. Its central claim is this. Almost everything our parents taught us about Christ is false. It was a subtle yet all-out attack on the historicity of the Christian faith. And it promoted a new spirituality. It's just paganism dressed up in modern garb. That's all it was. And it advocated replacing Christianity with the early pagan spirituality. Why was it so popular? Because it touched a nerve deep in our culture's heart. People love the darkness rather than the light. That's why. And the only remedy to this satanic darkness the light of Jesus Christ, which leads to my second implication in that believers are in the light. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If by faith in Jesus we live in the light, then sweet fellowship is the fruit. I think we've enjoyed that here. It proves that our sins have been cleansed by the precious blood Isn't that one of the best and sweetest benefits of the Christian faith? Every sin, all sin, any kind of sin is cleansed, expiated. That's the blessed condition to which God brings the followers of Jesus. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's a description of the state and condition of every Christian. We live in the light. We walk in the light. We are light in the Lord Jesus But let me move quickly to the third and final implication, which is this. We are witnesses. Christ rose in triumph. He ascended in glory, and now he intercedes for his people. We confess that. We believe that. And that means that his church has a job to do. Continuing his work on earth. God will not leave himself without witness, most notably in the church. And as we take our turn on the stage of history, right now it's our turn. We're going to pass from the stage of history. Our job is to bear witness. As long as it is today, we're called by Christ to testify of his grace to a lost world. He sends us as beacons of light to shine in the midst of a dark generation. And if you are sincere, let me put it this way. If you're sincere in your Christian faith, You cannot help but shine the light of Christ around you. You don't have to pass out tracts on the corner. Just by living a sincere, faithful Christian life, you can shine. It's almost this unconscious display of life from another world. In the general deportment of your life, you can't possibly hide your Christianity. And insofar as you try to obey Jesus, you'll stand out. To one degree or another, your life, if not your words, will be a witness. 
and it'll give cause for the world to glorify your heavenly Father. Now, if you're insincere, if you're negligent, if you're disobedient, you'll have little or no witness. We know that. You'll serve to some degree even as an anti-witness because you'll be living a lie. But the Christian who strives to live faithfully can't help but shine. On the football team, you can't help but shine. You're honest. You're sincere. You're hardworking for the glory of Christ. And every one of us is called upon to live in such a way as to be a light. So let's pray that God will teach us how to effectively bear witness to Christ. It's not an easy privilege. All kinds of opposition is working against us. I know that. The world scoffs. The devil schemes. The flesh recoils at the thought of doing this. How many times have you recoiled? Oh, here goes the evangelism sermon. We recoil. But as faithful followers of Christ, we fight the world, we resist the devil, we deny the flesh, we might be laughed at, we might be treated with scorn, we might be held in contempt, but so what? Jesus has the words of eternal life. What is a little harassment to that? Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In this dark world, you might be the only living witness of Christ that some people ever see. And as the Lord wills, your words and deeds may make an impact for the kingdom of heaven. So try to worship sincerely as you're doing this morning. This is a witness right here. Try to speak wisely to serve faithfully, to live in a godly way. And if you are sincere in your attempts, God will use your witness to save souls. Finally, and I close with this, Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This charge I receive from my Father. Do you see what he's saying? It's simply the example of Jesus who faithfully fulfilled his mission that we follow as we try to fulfill ours. May God enable us to do so by his grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent the light into this dark world. We ourselves, by nature, love the darkness and so we're grateful that the Holy Spirit changed our hearts. And through the witness of your people and your word, you brought us from darkness to light. Please help us to sing praises with joyful and sincere gratitude. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.